Welcome to Bad in the Boondocks. As always, I'm one of your hosts, Stan. And I'm Drew. How's it going? And we're glad that you're listening to us. One thing I want to mention, I want to thank all the podcasters out there that have been so supportive to us and helping us along the way. We greatly appreciate it. And especially Heather from Nature vs. Narcissism. We're going to meet you at... The True Crime Podcast Festival. Whoop, whoop, whoop. Yeah. Um, yeah. Heather's been great. Yeah. I think that'll be pretty fun. Oh, yeah. And so if you want to meet us as well as Nature versus Narcissism and so many other great podcasts that are in the true crime genre, get your tickets to True Crime Podcast Festival at tcpf.com. And let us know that you're coming. We would yeah. love to meet you. That would be great. And also a uh, big thanks to our True Crime Podcast. They've also been very, very supportive yes, with they us have. And, yeah, and helping us out and all kind of stuff. So greatly appreciate that as well. And thirdly, I would just like to say we are recording from Las La- Vegas. <laughs> Las and Vegas. I'm going to tell you that Las Vegas is pure shit. It's, I hate it. It's not our cup of tea. But um, I, I I get that a lot of people love it, but I hate it. I mean, it's just so it's, it's so freaking expensive, just not, and it's too freaking big and crowded. Because you know we're we're more homebound country boys. We ain't, we're not the type that goes out and <laughs> to the cities and stuff like that and have to walk around everywhere to find a single freaking exit to the hotel. And that's I have to a, walk twenty freaking minutes just to go smoke a cigarette. Exactly. Everything's so spread out, but um, that's how it is, and that's where we're recording. So, and screw you, Vegas. Yippee! That's all I've got to say about that. <laughs> Yippee! All right. Yippee well, um, fucking yay. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyways, I think that it is your turn to go first. I think it is too. And what better when I'm in a freaking bad mood than talk about a wonderful cereal? Killer? Exactly. You're gonna be so mean about this, though. <laughs> I'm going to talk about another Russian serial killer. Nothing against the Russians. Y'all are great, but y'all have a lot of interesting killers. And this time it is Anatoly Slivko. Anatoly Slivko was from the Soviet Socialist Republic in Russia. And he was married and a father of two young children. But to say that he was a happy man would not really be the case at all. Understatement. He was an insomniac. I can feel you, brother. He lacked an appetite, hated his own appearance, and he had great difficulty raising a desire to sleep with his wife. Now, this may not be how you pronounce her name. Don't two-star me. His wife's name was Ludmilla. Now, he met Lumilla at the Children's Club, which is kind of like the Boy Scouts for Russia. Oh, that's fun. (laughs) And he was employed there whenever he met her. Although Anatoly courted young Lumilla, 
They never touched during that courtship, nor did they share so much as a kiss. Less boring. Even after the wedding and throughout the 17-year marriage, sex came so rarely that Ludmilla counted herself lucky to have conceived the two sons that she had. Very lucky. Anatoly was a good husband and father, though, but something, even he didn't understand what, was definitely lacking in his life and probably always has been. That is until one afternoon in the summer of 1961. It was that day that Anatoly learned what he had been missing all of his life. What do you think it is? Sex drive. I was thinking maybe KFC. Come get your Kentucky Fried Chicken. That would be nice to have a KFC nearby, but oh no. Oh, my God, anyway, dude. Let me shut up. <laughs> I swear to God. While in the city on this particular day, Anatoly witnessed a horrific accident that would change him forever. He watched helplessly as an intoxicated motorcyclist collided with a group of pedestrians on the city streets, and it fatally wounded a teenage boy, Anatoly presumably as freaked out as everyone else in that minute, was, however, unable to take his eyes from the accident. He could smell the gasoline seeping from the motorcycle, as well as as the small fire that had erupted in the collision. And he was suddenly just as intrigued by his own sexual excitement as he stared on at the scene. He watched, not really understanding this strange new means of arousal, but knowing it was caused by the horrible view before him. And it was, he realized, each of the components of that horrific scene, in its entirety, that was turning him on, making him hard. What a fruitcake. The smells... The fire, the death struggle of the young boy as he convulsed wildly in his death throes and the young pioneer uniform the boy was wearing with the crisp white shirt, the polished shoes, and the slim tie that the teenager wore. Each piece of the strange, gruesome puzzle added a layer of intrigue that Anatoly would soon come to use frequently to try and regain that same level of sexual arousal for the next 22 years. Quote, I felt the attraction to boys for the first time in my life. There was a lot of blood and gasoline on the asphalt, the smell of the gasoline and the fire. I suddenly felt a desire to hurt a young boy like him. The feeling haunted me, and I had to move far away to make the desire disappear. But after five to six months, after an ejaculation during sleep, the same excitement rose again and consistently pursued me. Unquote. In 1963, nearly a year after realizing this unique side of himself, Anatoly began exploiting his position in the children's club, known as the Churgid, where he was yet employed. Sounds a little perverted, though. I mean, I understand that it's like a, it's like a, um, what do you call it? 
you know, Boy Scouts. Boy Scouts, but come on, Children's Club. Boy Scouts. Yeah, that sounds a little perverted I mean, too. That's to even be worse. Like you're scouting for boy. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? He began by forming closer relationships with some of the young boys in his group. Because he was well respected in his area and had won awards for some of his short films, the youngsters as well as the adults enjoyed and trusted his company. He built his strongest ties with boys that were always between the ages of 13 to 17, and always of a shorter stature. And because he was tourism-wise, he was approved to form hiking trips for the children in the club. This was a great thrill for the kids, and so they were more than happy to join him on whatever adventure he might present them with, wanting desperately to relive in fantasy the motorcycle accident that had sexually aroused him and released his inner self in the summer of 61. Anatoly set the stage for his first experiment, as he would come to call them. He convinced a young boy to allow him to conduct a controlled hanging to unconsciousness, telling the young man it was with a premise of stretching the boy's spine. Because the boy was shorter. I just don't understand how that will work. Well, sure. I mean, if you tell me, well, I want to hang you until you fall into unconsciousness, it'll stretch your spine. But it's all cool. I'd be like, sure, go <laughs> for it. Why not? Yeah, but there's no what What, what happens in just... Vegas stays in Vegas, baby. <laughs> that, who told us that? That is a big saying. Oh, well, somebody told us that, like, not too long ago. I think it might have been on the plane and, like... Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> when the hanging boy was unconscious, Anatoly removed the noose, laid the boy to the ground, and fiercely masturbated and ejaculated onto the boy's shoes. That was a disgusting sound effect. <laughs> it didn't even match, but I mean... Once the boy regained consciousness, he was not able to remember anything, which would probably be a good thing. Anatoly killed his first victim in June of 1964. Filming and photographing the event from beginning to end, he hung a 15-year-old named Nikolai. Nikolai. Or that. <laughs> Whichever you want. Yeah. Once the boy had lost consciousness, guess what? Anatoly would remove the noose, and then he posed the child in a position that he found sexually arousing. Doggy style. Then masturbated over him, all while caressing and fondling the boy. When the boy did not wake and Anatoly was unable to revive him, he said, Oopsies. I'm just kidding. I doubt he'd actually say that. No. But he was unable to revive him, so he dismembered the boy's body. He burned it and buried it. He kept the shoes as a souvenir, but destroyed the film and the pictures that he had taken of the event. It's a little nasty, isn't it? A little bit. In May of the following year of 1965, Anatoly chose and killed his second young victim. His name was Alexa. Anatoly's favorite ploy. 
after gaining a particular boy's complete adoration, trust, and confidence, which didn't take much as the boys loved their club leader, would be to tell his unrealizing would-be victim of an experiment that he wanted to try, which involved hanging until unconscious, stretching the spine, and then revival of the victim. Trusting that Anatoly would do as he said and revive the child after losing consciousness, most of the boys became willing participants in these so-called experiments. Once Anatoly had his target in mind and the consent of the boy, he would buy the young man a new young pioneer's uniform. This was a must for his experiment. And he would have the child's shoes shined. The only thing the child himself had to do for the experiment was to obey one rule. That rule was to not eat for three hours before the experiment. Hey, huh? but really that's what like a young boy cares about is getting his shoes shine. Yeah, well. That's a little. Anatoly didn't want his victim to vomit. Over the next 22 years, Anatoly was able to persuade... 43 young boys and teenagers to take part in this hanging experiment. In 36 of those cases, Anatoly was able to revive the hung victim, who was likewise then cautioned into secrecy about the experiment, and they went on their way, not being able to remember much about the event at all. And it would not be until many long years later, actually it was 22 years, that any of those 36 boys realized that many of the other experiment volunteers had not been as lucky as they. But due to the video recordings that Anatoly made of each experiment, they would come to understand what he had actually done to them while they lay unconscious before him. And who they would then realize had not been a friend but a fiend that had used them for his own perverted sexual pleasures and fetishes. As the films and photographs would show, once the hanging boy was unconscious, Anatoly would free him from the noose and lay him on the ground. He would then strip him naked while caressing and fondling him, then arrange the body in a strange and suggestive position. Then, of course, he would masturbate over them. Then he would allow the child to wake or... If need be, he would work at reviving the victim himself. Once the child was fully awake, he would be left with very little memory of the event and none at all of the molestation. All of the experiment subjects were not as lucky as others, however. In seven of the cases, something went wrong. Anatoly wanted more wanted, perhaps maybe even needed, what the original accident scene had sparked in him. He needed that strange new sexual excitement again. The blood, the gasoline, the fire, the convulsing body groping to stay alive while in the throes of certain death. Ugh. He needed that rush. He wanted that rush. With these victims, his mindset was on the violence that he originally desired to inflict on a young boy. These children, once lost in the unconscious state due to the hanging, 
He would dismember the body, pour gasoline on their limbs and torso, and set them on fire so as to remind himself of the traffic accident, which once again aroused him very sexually. Oh my God. He kept the victim's shoes as a memento of the event. Just as with those that survived his experiment, his murders were likewise photographed and filmed from beginning to end for his viewing pleasure. You know some of them had to have stank feet. He's sitting up in there smelling them. He probably had stank feet. Yeah, I would imagine so. After the disappearance of his last victim, the police began to investigate the activities of Anatoly's club. They found a dark room that belonged to Anatoly, and inside, they discovered the truth about the good and respected man of the community. His tools, the rope, saws, axes, and shoes were among the pictures and the videos that he had kept for 22 years. He was arrested in December of 1985, and he was charged with seven counts of murder, sexual abuse, and necrophilia. He was sentenced to death, and he was executed with one gunshot fired to his head. Now, one of the tapes did make it onto the internet, and you can, if you dig deep, you can find it. If you dare to go look at it. I did. (laughs) It's not pleasant. However, you cannot unsee it once you do see it, and it is very hard to find. You know, like, a lot of things that are actually real look like they're fake you know what i'm saying because you're because you're so used to um you know seeing it on movies and stuff like that of you of them killing people you know you're not used to it being in real life exactly what you're used to seeing as real is really fake and so the real looks fake yes <laughs> and fake looks real if you understand that yeah, right. that's, that's how it goes that's and how it goes that's man that's what i've got for you that was anatolius that was Let's pretty go. good. That was pretty good, man. You know? He's my hero. I'm just kidding. You're, you're retarded. My head hurts so bad, though. Yeah, I can't I'll, even find a place to so. get any headache medicine. There, There's literally, like, nowhere to get any Well, there's plenty headache. of crap, but there's nowhere. All the stores are Stuff's closed. Stuff's important. Stuff yes, that's important. like headache medicine. Exactly, like... Where's where's even a CVS at? Oh my god, I ain't seen this. Walgreens CVS. something. Good God. A gas station for freak's sake. Good Lord, I meant. Okay, we're staying at the. Where you can't even see a star in the sky because of all the lights around. Yeah, here. what? Where are we staying at? The the Venetian. The Venetian. Okay, so if one of y'all has ever stayed at the Venetian Hotel, or whatever you want to call it, um. Tell us where the crap you can find some place to get some headache medicine. Or, or something, man. I swear, I mean, you can't find nothing around here. You can't find nothing around here, man. But anyways, I guess I'll go on and get into my story. Mine is the McStay family murder. In 2010, took McStay, age 40... And his wife, Summer, age 43, lived in Fallbrook, California, with their sons, Gianni, age 4, and Joseph Jr., age 3. Joseph owned a company called Earth Inspired Products, and they built decorative fountains, and Summer was a licensed real estate agent. 
On a neighbor's surveillance system on February 4, 2010, at 7.47 p.m., it caught the bottom of an 18 inches of a vehicle, which it was thought to be the McStay family 1996 Isuza Trooper, which I have no idea what that is. Um, at 8.28 p.m., a call came in from Joseph McStay's cell phone to his business associate, Chase Merritt, but it went to voicemail. Merritt later told police that he ignored it because he was watching a movie, in which a lot of us feel like once we're Netflix and chilling, we don't really want to be answering phone calls. But anyways, Joseph's cell phone did ping a tower in Fallbrook, and over the next days or so, relatives of the McStays tried to contact him, but was unsuccessful. And then on February 13th, Joseph's brother went to the McStays' residence, where he found a window opened in the back, in which he climbed in and went into the home. When Michael McStay went into the home, he found nobody there, and their two dogs were left in the backyard. On February 15th, Michael called the sheriff's department and reported his family missing. Police requested a search warrant, and it was executed on February 19th of 2010, but it showed no evidence of a struggle or foul play. There were indications of a hasty departure, because a carton of eggs was left on the counter, and two child-sized bowls of popcorn set on a sofa. Police then learned on February 8th at 11 p.m. the family's trooper had been towed from a strip mall parking lot from San Hesidro, San Diego. Yeah, it is believed that it was parked there between 5.30 and 7 o'clock that evening. In Victorville, California, on November 11, 2013, a motorcyclist was just cruising on through and found four sets of human remains buried in two shallow graves. Patrick McStay, Joseph's father, was informed of this discovery and phoned missing persons advocate Jerry Dean, a missing persons of America, to tell her what he knew. Dean was just finishing up producing a radio show when she received a phone call and she was asked to tell her followers what he had told her. And I'm still not quite sure what in the crap did he tell her to tell her followers. I'm not quite sure of that. Um, two days later, two sets of remains were officially identified as those of Joseph, and Summer McStay. The deaths were ruled out as a homicide. And San Bernardino County authorities believe that the family died of blunt force trauma inside their home. Days later, after discovering the bodies, Patrick McStay said that Dan... San... <laughs> I said Dan Diego. <laughs> San Diego Sheriff's Department investigation was faulty, and he filed former complaints. The circumstances about the family's disappearance and the lack of clues about their whereabouts made people think that these were amateurs who did this. No. Yes. Radio host named Rick Baker even published a, a book, and it was called No Goodbyes, and it was about the family's disappearance. In his book, he speculated that Summer might have committed these murders, 
But when the bodies were found, he was proven wrong, and he offered refunds to those who purchased his book before November 13th. After their disappearance, it looked like the McStays left voluntarily because police found searches on the family's computers for what documents do children need to travel to Mexico and Spanish language lessons. So it looked like they were on the run, run from something, but I have no idea what. And in that case, they were killed in the home. So, like, I guess that, like, somebody would have made it look like they left in a hurry, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It just sounds like that's what it, what it boils down to, really. But police looked at the video recording of February 8th at the pedestrian gate in New Mexico and it showed a family that looked like the McStays crossing the border, but I mean, I guess it couldn't have been because they were killed in the home, right? But on well, February... walking dead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> on February 19th, 2010, California police notified Interpol to be on the lookout for the family. And on April 2013, San Diego Sheriff's Department announced that they believed that the McStays traveled to Mexico voluntarily. Um, so did they go to Mexico or not? I, I really don't think so because all the clues led it to, I think that this was what they were speculating and what they thought was what happened. But in the end, I think, well, this is what I think. I think oh, from what it see, seems like, that they were killed in the home. Someone made it look like they had traveled to Mexico, okay? Uh And these were not, you know, concrete sightings of them. It was just people who looked like them. So had they not found their bodies? Um, yes. So if they were dead? I'm saying, but like they were just like backtracking it to see what happened. You know what I'm saying? So confused. No, what I'm saying is... I understand I, what you're saying. Ki- I, I believe they may have been killed in the home. And then they were... Before they came to that conclusion, I think they were, like, backtracking to see what could have happened. Uh-huh. You know, and got them dead, but I'm not sure. There were sightings of what... Yeah, well, and elsewhere, but it was unconfirmed of their sightings. Relatives of the McStays said that it was highly unlikely that they traveled to Mexico because Joseph and Summer hated the country because of the safety threat posed by recent drug wars. So it seems like they may have not. They even had $100,000 in bank accounts with no withdrawals of funds to prepare for the trip and their accounts were untouched after the disappearance. Summer's sister even stated that her passport had been expired, although it is possible for a U.S. citizen to enter Mexico without a passport, but you do have to have one to re-enter to the United States. Police kept the McStay's partner, um, business partner Charles Chase Merritt under close watch. And um, actually, a friend of his told police to keep a watch on him, actually, because he had, like, fellow... Because um, according to state records, he had felony convictions for burglary and um, receiving stolen property. And his most recent felony conviction was in 2001 when he stole $32,000 worth of welding and drilling equipment from San Gabriel Valley. 
Ornamental Ironworks in Monrovia, California, which is, that's where he stole it from. Um, Merritt admitted in 2013 that he had spent more than an hour with Joseph the day that the McStay family went missing. Joseph's father, Patrick, was asked, did he think that Merritt was a suspect? And he said, and I quote, I have to have faith in Chase because I have to have faith in my son. I believe that Joseph trusted Chase and believed in Chase. Do I think that Chase is involved? I don't think so, and I really, truly hope not. End quote. Merritt did say in January 2014 that he might write a book about the family, saying that Summer had anger issues and that Joseph had been ill for some time with some kind of mysterious ailment. Joseph's family did confirm that he had an unexplained illness. They also said that Summer was possessive of her husband, but they called Merritt's suggestion that she was responsible for his illness. Patrick McStay said, I quote, I believe she loved my son. In 2013, the McStay's relatives called Summer's ex-boyfriend, Vic Johansson. The family believe email records demonstrated that Johansson was obsessed with Summer. Four years after their relationship ended, and he has a criminal history, which included violent threats, felony vandalism, disturbing the peace, interfering with the business, and resisting a peace officer. It was strange because he had patterns of movement around the time of the disappearance, which police consider suspicious. On November 5, 2014, detectives from the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Department arrested Merritt in connection with the deaths of the McStay family. After discovering, after discovering that his DNA had been recovered from their car, his arrest was announced on November 7, 2014. Merritt was charged with four counts of murder, and the district attorney is seeking the death penalty. I'm just going to tell you, I just dropped mine on the floor for the second time. <laughs> In July 2015, 2015, Merritt's defense attorney filed a request to have the case dismissed because of the wording used by the prosecution when the charges were filed. The autopsies of the body concluded that all four victims had been beaten to death with a blunt object, and investigators believed the murder op weapon was a three-pound sledgehammer, which was found in the grave containing the remains of Summer and her son. Investigators testified that they believe the victims were tortured before they were killed. Prosecutors claimed that Merritt had a gambling problem and killed the family for money, and they say that he wrote checks for more than $21,000 on Joseph's business account in the days after the family was killed and then went on a gambling spree to nearby casinos and lost thousands of dollars. <laughs> Sounds like us. The trial kept getting delayed because he kept firing his attorneys, and on February 2016, he had gone through five attorneys. In January 2018, a trial setting conference was to be held on February 23rd and Merritt's attorney filed a motion in San Bernardino Superior Court on April 7, 2018, 
arguing that Joseph's business and accounting records were evidence inadmissible. On May 4th, the trial date was set to be in July 2018, but it finally begun. Uh-huh. It, fin- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it finally began on January 7th, 2019 in San Bernardino Court. On June 10th, 2019 in San Bernardino County, the San Bernardino County jury found Merritt guilty of murdering the McStay family, and he could face the death sentence as a result. <sighs> wow, that was kind of long. And I Mary, know that. You have confused I'm not going to lie to you. I'm so sorry, people. I'm so sorry. I'm what? sorry. Thanks so much if you did last this long, though, because I know that that one was a doozy, first of all, and I had looked for about three to four hours trying to find something. And actually, that was about the most interesting that I could come up with. It's what I was trying to look for. And, I mean, it, it was a long one, but thank you for sticking with me. Well, I've been watching forensic files on you. I know that you have. I know that you have, because you have not looked at me or really said much at all. You've just been sort of staring at the TV. My head hurts. I'm aware of that. Well, I, I think that's all that we've yeah, got that's for you. Yeah, so got, y'all. Which one, well, I know which one's worse. <laughs> I don't even have to ask that. I mean, but thank you for sticking with us. We really do appreciate all the um, listeners we get and the feedback. So go on and leave us a comment. Come on and subscribe. You know, do all that fancy stuff. All that fancy stuff. <laughs> I and you can um, send us an email at just say badintheboondocks at gmail.com. Or and, always, you could do stan at badintheboondocks.com. No, but, but the better, okay, since you wanted to bring it to that level, then you need to go to drew at badintheboondocks.com. That's your way better option. I check my emails about every five minutes. Yes, but if you want maturity, then go to Stan at I know, Bad but and Quit interrupting me whenever I'm telling <laughs> Hurry you. Hurry up and go. Stan at BadInTheBoondocks.com. <laughs> but if you want more of a bond relationship, then go on and or stick with me. That's not a stalker. It's literally like I form like... You just so, said you check your email like it's every like, five minutes. It's like, Come a, on now. it's like a friendship. What a loser. It's like a friendship, really. Are you that desperate for one? All, all of you guys are my friends. I'm not going to lie to you. But that's that's all we, that we got for you. That's what oh, we yeah. got. It's always one. Please go on to our Patre- Patreon. Because yeah, we couldn't keep... I mean, we need to keep this ad-free. Yeah, we are totally ad-free. Also, but, I mean, we've been spent- But it is free for y'all, but not for us Oh, my all. God, no. I'm telling you that right now. Definitely not for us. And we've spent so much money on... To be able to do this, which we enjoy putting episodes out to y'all, so I mean, if you if would, have if you that would like urge, to, if like, you would like to, if your pocket is itching because you've got just extra five, money, in just five dollars a month is so much to us. So if you if you would like to do that, go right ahead. But I think that's all that we got for us, ain't there, right, Stan? As always, I've been Stan, and I'm always Jeru every time. So we'll see you next time. See you later, Dad in the Boondocks. See ya.